Great, do take a seat, and as you do, take up your Bibles, if you would, and open them up at Numbers chapter 8. It's actually a slightly shorter reading than the one on the screen. We're going to be reading from Numbers chapter 8, verse 5, through to the end of that chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Take the Levites from among all the Israelites and make them ceremonially clean. To purify them, do this. Sprinkle the water of cleansing on them and make them shave their whole bodies and wash their clothes. And so they will purify themselves. Make them take a young bull with its grain offering of the finest flour mixed with olive oil. Then you to take a second young bull for a sin offering. Bring the Levites to the front of the tent of meeting and assemble the whole Israelite community. You are to bring the Levites before the Lord and the Israelites are to lay their hands on them. Aaron is to present the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the Israelites so that they may be ready to do the work of the Lord. Then the Levites are to lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, using one for a sin offering to the Lord and the other for a burnt offering to make atonement for the Levites. Make the Levites stand in front of Aaron and his sons and then present them as a wave offering to the Lord. In this way, you are to set the Levites apart from the other Israelites and the Levites will be mine. After you have purified the Levites and presented them as a wave offering, they are to come and do the work at the tent of meeting. They are the Israelites who are to be given wholly to me. I have taken them as my own in place of the firstborn, the first male offspring from every Israelite woman. Every firstborn male in Israel, whether human or animal, is mine. When I struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, I set them apart for myself. And I've taken the Levites in place of all the firstborn sons in Israel. From among all the Israelites, I've given the Israelites as gifts to Aaron and his sons to do the work at the tent of meeting on behalf of the Israelites and to make atonement for them so that no plague will strike the Israelites when they go near to the sanctuary. Moses, Aaron, and the whole Israelite community did what the Levites, just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Levites purified themselves and washed their clothes. Then Aaron presented them as a wave offering before the Lord and made atonement for them to purify them. After that, the Levites came to do their work at the tent of meeting under the supervision of Aaron and his sons. They did with the Levites just as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses, This applies to the Levites. Men 25 years old or more shall come to take part in the work at the tent of meeting. But the age of 50, they must retire from their usual duties and work no longer. They may assist their brothers in performing their duties at the tent of meeting, but they themselves must not do the work. This, then, is how you are to assign the responsibilities of the Levites. Amen. Let's pray. Ask for God's help as we look at these two chapters, 7 and 8, together. Our loving Father, we, as we read these chapters, 
we're going to see in them things that I know in our heads and our hearts we want to be true in our lives and yet if we're honest we struggle to put these things into practice so I pray those words from the book of James for us all that we would not merely be hearers of the word and so deceive ourselves but to be doers also Amen Great, well uh, can anyone tell me what's going to happen in 285 days time? Any ideas? Christmas, there we go. Uh, I get very irritated that every year the shops get full with Christmas stuff earlier and earlier. Um, It used to be never anything until after Halloween. Now, even before Halloween this year, uh, down in town in Waitrose, there was Christmas stuff being sold. Um, I'm a sort of purist. I think Christmas can come on the 1st of December and it shouldn't be seen beforehand. So I thought we'd get in there early. Uh, Christmas. Talk a bit about Christmas. Can we recall the 12 days of Christmas? what our true love gave to us. Do we know what they are? On the twelfth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me... Twelve drummers drumming, good, let's keep going. Eleven pipers piping, ten lords are leaping, nine ladies dancing, eight maids are milking, seven swans are singing, six... Good, we can sing this one. There we go. If you're listening to this on the tape, I hope that was tuneful. Uh, four, three, good, two, and one. Uh, on the 12 days of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Uh, and uh, our true love was very generous if they gave all these 12 things. And we're going to be thinking a bit today uh, about a response of generosity to our true love. Not our love as we might reflect in a silly song from Christmas, but a true response to the God who's loved us perfectly in Jesus. And if you can remember, we'll just uh, recap, we'll keep coming back to this. Three pictures in the middle there represent the book of Numbers. There's this aimless wandering around in the desert because God's people take their eyes off him. They grumble, they waste time. And so we've seen every week, the book of Numbers holds up a mirror in front of us to challenge us, don't be like them. Right, the book of Numbers is a warning. Don't waste your life. But then there's the second part of the book of Numbers. It's there to encourage us that God is faithful even when we fail to be faithful. And the mirror and the encouragement always sit side by side. And so you'll remember that the first four chapters of the book of Numbers, counting in coordination. And here's a picture we looked at last week. There's the Israelite camp and you can see the tabernacle in the middle. Uh, and the, the priests are camping just around the outside in the small um, little pointy tents, and then you've got the tribes of Israel around them. So the first four chapters of the book of Numbers, counting God's people who've been rescued from Egypt, come into the desert, they're heading to the promised land. Then we looked, didn't we, last week at chapters 5 and 6, focused on holiness. And remember we reflected on why does God call us to be holy? It's because it prevents us from descending into chaos. God's holiness calls us back to him because holiness is what facilitates relationship with him. And so to continue then from chapters 1 to 4, counting and coordination, chapters 5 and 6, holiness that helps us flourish in relationship with God. What we get in chapters 7 and 8 is an expression of love in response to all that God has done for us. It's an outpouring of love. And so the big question that I want to look at together tonight is this one. What should the Christian life look like? What should the Christian life look like? 
Um, And do you remember, um, we looked at this last week, back in chapter 3, the Levites, this was a specific tribe set apart to serve in the tabernacle, to represent God's people and to help collective worship be made possible. And you can see, and we looked at this last week on the screen, here's the tabernacle representative of where God is at the heart of his people, surrounded by the priests, the priestly tribes of Levi, and these are his three sons. The Merorites, the Gershonites, and the Kohathites. And then outside of them, we have 12 tribes, thousands and thousands of men and women camping um, around the people of God. And you saw in our, you would have seen if we had read chapter 7, but do turn to chapter 7 if you have it in front of you. That in chapter 7 then, God calls the leader of each of these 12 tribes around the outside of the camp to bring to the Levites in the center of the camp offerings. So do you see chapter 7? Verse 2. Then the leaders of, the, of Israel, the heads of the families who were the tribal leaders in charge of those who were counted, made offerings. They brought as their gifts before the Lord six covered carts and twelve oxen, an oxen from each leader and a cart from every two. These they presented before the tabernacle. Uh, what was the point of the carts? The carts were there because they had to bring a lot of stuff and it was heavy. What was the point of the oxen? Uh, to pull the carts because they were heavy. Uh, and these were gifts that were given to facilitate worship. And then you'll see, and we haven't read it, but if you go to verse 12 of chapter 7 and through the rest of chapter 7, we see that on each of 12 days, one of the leaders of each of the 12 tribes is called upon to bring the offering on behalf of that tribe up to the temple for the priests to use in worship. It was their expression of Um, supporting this act of collective worship. So in answer to that question, what should the Christian life look like? Firstly, it looks like a life of obedience. So there's a question to ask yourself, as I ask myself. Are you living an obedient life? Remember the context. Where have they come from? Egypt. Where are they? They're in the desert. Where are they going? The promised land. How are they going to get there? By hearing the voice of God. And why do they walk around in circles for 38 years? Because they stop listening. So let's just have a think. And hopefully you can see um, a quick chart here. Let's have a think about this word obedience. Um, God calls us to be obedient. As you think about that call to be obedient, how does that make us feel when God calls us to be obedient? Let's just throw out the emotions of how we might respond to a God who calls us to be obedient. Do you have any ideas? Fear of failure? Cool. So God calls us to be obedient, and there's fears associated with obedience. What happens if I fail? What other emotions does this call for obedience come to your eyes? Yeah. Um, don't want to. Why don't I want to obey God? Well, because it's difficult. Or because in my pride I think I know better. A few more ideas. Yeah, kind of leads to, to fear. Terribly, rather. Never mind. Um, inadequacy. It's very wrong. Never mind. Never mind. Yeah, we could do that. It's a bit long-winded, but um, it's like sometimes maybe this image of um, a 
an autocratic parent kind of laying down the law, you know, perhaps <coughs> over overruling you, overbearing, and um, that sort of image in your mind. Yeah, how do I summarise that? Um, duty. Duty, thank you, that's helpful. Yeah, the sense, of the sense of duty, God is calling me to obey him, it's just a sense of duty, I don't really want to disobey him. Let's have one more idea. Other feelings that come here up. Burdensome? Yeah, it can feel a duty and a bit of a burden, okay? And then if you were to broaden out this discussion and you think of a person who doesn't know Christ, and they're called to be obedient to him, what sort of emotions might that conjure up? You know, somebody who's not a Christian. Yeah, there we go. That's a pretty good one, isn't it? No way. I don't even believe in the God who's calling me to be obedient, let alone want to be obedient. And so on. And we won't go into it because we can think of lots of things that our friends who don't know Christ might say. But think about obedience because sometimes we see it as quite a negative thing. It's a burden. It's a duty. And if you're not a Christian, you think it's outright wrong. But come to our passage. Have a look at verse 11 of chapter 7. Notice that for the people of God, at least in this moment, obedience was a response to hearing the voice of God. It was much more of a positive thing. Chapter 7, verse 11. For the Lord had said to Moses, each day one leader is to bring his offering for the dedication of the altar. For the Lord had said, and they hear what he says. Obedience is to do with hearing the voice of God. And amazingly, and I'll give you a few examples of this. If you follow through chapter 7, 8 into chapter 9, you see repeated examples of how God's people live in obedience to him in this moment. Come to chapter 8, verse 4. Uh, this, is, this is how the lampstand was made. It was made of hammered gold. The lampstand was made exactly like the pattern the Lord had shown Moses. They didn't just make a lampstand, they made it to the precise specification of what God had said. Obedience. Um, 8.20 Moses, Aaron and the whole Israelite community did with the Levites just as the Lord commanded Moses. If you were to skip on to chapter 9, verse 5 the Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded. And there may be a summary verse, chapter 9, verse 23. At the Lord's command they encamped, at the Lord's command they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. So I want us to see that here, when we see God's people getting it right, they're living a life of obedience in response to what God has said. And we'll come back to that later on. So what does the Christian life look like? It looks like a life of obedience. And the second thing is, it looks like a life of sacrifice. So again, ask yourself this question, a direct question. Am I, are you living a sacrificial life? Uh, if you were to look at chapter 7, and just have a glance down. We didn't read it, but just glance down from chapter 7, verse 12 onwards. Just, just flick through the rest of chapter 7. What do you notice? It's an illustration of God's people, each on the 12 days, bringing their gifts to the tabernacle. Does anyone spot something about what happens on each of the days? Any ideas? The leaders bring the offering up. Good. Just notice, what do they bring up? Not, don't think specifics, just think... There's a whole pattern going on in this chapter. What do they bring up? Just to compare day one with day two as an example. The same. Brilliant. There we go. It's the same. And you read this chapter and it feels rather monotonous. On day one, this tribe brings up this and it's all listed out. And then on day two, it lists out exactly the same thing. And day three and so on. You think, why on earth have they repeated themselves? So much so that if you read some translations, they actually 
kind of cut out a whole heap of chapter 7 and they give what is, happens on the first day and then they use a phrase to the effect of, and this continued every day. But that's not to do justice to the passage because in the original, what is given every day is repeated. Day 1, day 2, day 3, all the way up to day 12. Well, why? Because if you read it, it feels a bit boring. Okay, we've got the pattern now. They're bringing the same thing day 1, day 2. Why then is it here, repeated? Any ideas? Brilliant. It shows their obedience. And there's a sense here, isn't it, in in which every tribe of the people of God brought the same thing. I don't think the application, therefore, for us is we should all bring the same because God blesses us all with different means. And giving is a grace that is enabled in different ways in different people. I think the point is less about we all bring the same, more the sense that everyone brings something to the table. The whole point is the whole people of God is worshipping God. And they all bring something in worship of him. In other words, we've all got a role to play. And what you see is the community coming together, uniting, and then each tribe gives something to the tabernacle in their part, to play their part in the worship of God. Uh, last week after preaching, I went home with the song that we sang ringing in my ears, and it made me think. Um, I think it's quite easy to sing this song, but think about the words and how deep they run. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. Lord, have your way in me. It's kind of easy to sing that song, isn't it? Because it's kind of common and we know it. But think about what we mean when we really speak those words. I give you my heart. And I went home reflecting, Lord, I don't give you all of my heart. I give you my soul. But I don't trust you with tomorrow, let alone the future. Lord, have your way in me. It's a very dangerous prayer to pray. Do I really want you to have your way in me? But here we see the whole people of God all coming to the table and they're laying their hearts before God, together worshipping him. The point is they're not rescued for nothing. They're rescued. They've been brought out of Egypt for a purpose, that is to worship God. And we have this wonderful picture where at this moment, because they're hearing the voice of God, because they're being obedient, there isn't chaos. And God's people are flourishing. So if you come into chapter 8 now, We have a description of the Levites, the people who are set apart to help facilitate this worship. And you read there in chapter 8, verse 21, that the Levites are purified. Um, They're set apart. It's it's a sense of being freed. But the question is why? Why are they set apart? Notice verse 22. We're set apart to serve. They were purified so that, verse 22, they are to do their work. Think of um, the words of the Lord Jesus in uh, John chapter 4, verse 34. He says, my food, which is a description of his work, my food is to do the will of my Father. Jesus, God's Son, says, my food is to do the will of my Father. And our work, as those who know Christ, who've been rescued by him, is to do exactly the same thing, to do the will of our Father. And that looks like an obedient life, of self-sacrifice and the amazing thing is that looks different for all of us because we've all got different gifts we've all in different situations and even for you as an individual you may have different seasons of your life where how you serve God will change but what we're doing isn't as important as the point that we all are serving and there's this almost humorous part you might have picked it up towards the end of chapter 8 in the reading there When you read chapter 8, verses 23 to 25, it almost appears like the Bible is giving license for what people call Christian retirement. Did you see it there? If you're a young... I'm going to look it up again. 
It's rather good if you're over 50, was it 55? If you're over 50, look at that, that's pretty alright, isn't it? If you're over 50, basically you can just chill out and everyone under 50 does the work. This is cool. It's a justification for holidays. But here's the truth. We never retire from the Christian life. So what's going on here where God seems to command everyone over 50 not to do the work? Well, the point is that the work that the young men were doing in bringing the stuff up to the tabernacle with the carts and the and the oxen, it was just heavy work. They were bringing heavy stuff. And it was hard work. And physically, older men, older people couldn't have done that. But really significantly here, where we're told that those who are older are to assist these younger men. Don't read that word assist in a sort of derogatory sense of the young people will do it all. And everyone who's a bit older just assists. That word assist isn't speaking in a derogatory sense. It's speaking in the sense of they can't do it without you. And so here's a little application for you if you are perhaps a little bit older. And uh, I don't know where you would draw your line for what is older. Um, But let's just go with it. I want to ask you the question to encourage you, particularly if maybe you are retired from paid work. How are you not spending your retirement, but how are you investing your (coughs) retirement? Um, I've heard a few uh, much older people in the church who said recently, um, they find it really difficult because they can't be at the meetings they always used to be at. They can't lead or be physically involved in some of the ministries they'd love to be involved in. But I know, having spent time with some of them, they're absolute prayer warriors. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, be a prayer warrior. And it's absolutely essential. And it may be that some of the younger people in the church are doing more of the ministry. Not necessarily. I don't want to make unhelpful caricatures. But it may be that... But don't see that faithful prayer that no one else sees as lesser or not important. It's that really vital work of assisting. Church can't happen without those prayer warriors. And you'll know if you're a prayer warrior. And you probably will never get any praise for it. But God sees it and delights in it. As the church grows, the the pastoral care is increasing. I know that sometimes with um, growing age, particular pastoral burdens might fall upon you. But for others, you might grow a bit older and actually experience pretty good health. What a wonderful blessing then to use some of the freedom maybe of not having to be in paid employment every day. To really reach out in a consistent way in pastoral care in in a church that needs it as we grow. And what about using your experience, your Christian maturity to read the Bible one to one with someone? And perhaps someone who's finishing the Just Looking course, which will complete this round on Tuesday next week. Not how are we spending our retirement, putting our feet up, but actually recognizing what is meant by that word assist here. That actually all of us together have a role to play in the life of the church. And whether it's a public role or a very busy role or a super hidden role and a very quiet role, all of these roles matter to God. And not a single one is more important than another. So there's the mirror in the passage. I guess a bit of a challenge, just to ask yourself directly, am I living an obedient life? Am I living a sacrificial life? And here's the encouragement. We also see in this passage that obedience and sacrifice makes the Christian life the very best life, which is different to some of the feelings, and I have all of these feelings and many more about obedience. It's sometimes different to some of these feelings that we've looked at at the beginning. Come back to the words of Jesus in John chapter 4. My work, my food, is to do the will of my Father. Well, Jesus was the most spirit-filled man who ever lived. 
And he experienced the greatest freedom of any of us. And yet he was also at the same time the most obedient man who ever lived. True freedom comes through obedience to God. And sometimes our natural inclination is to think if I'm obedient to God, it will take away my freedom. And the Bible wants to say, be encouraged. Obedience leads to true freedom. Because here's the thing. If I don't live for the will of my father, whose will am I living for? Well, probably my own. Or being driven by the agenda of somebody else. And actually that just enslaves me. But if I live for his will and put him first, it frees me. It frees me from needing to perform. It frees me from the guilt when I'm not obedient. Because in God's love there is true freedom. And so to sort of bring things to a close, I want us to see that true freedom is found through listening to the voice of God. And the voice of God and obedience are intricately linked. Did you notice in the middle of chapter, we wouldn't have noticed if we didn't read it, but have a look at chapter 7 verse 89. It comes right at the heart of this passage in the middle of chapter 7 and 8. This is really the heartbeat of these two chapters on obedience. When Moses entered the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, to speak with the Lord, listen to this, he heard the voice speaking to him from above. Here's a question for you. When you gather here on a Sunday morning, or as you sit here gathered together tonight, what do you expect when we come together? Because we need to pray together to encourage each other that increasingly we would expect to meet with God. We don't just come together because it's what we do on a Sunday. We don't just come together because it's nice to be with friends, as nice as it is to be with friends. We come together expectantly to hear from the voice of God. And I hope we're hearing from his voice because we need to keep in step with his spirit. And if we're not hearing his voice, then we'll be very busy as a church, but we won't be keeping in line with God's will and doing what he wants us to do. And so do you see now how as we're reflecting on obedience, everything we've seen before in these previous weeks, this coordination and counting, this holiness, this thing that's meant to be helping relationships to flourish. What is the purpose of all these sacrifices and the priestly duties? All that is ultimately a means to an end to facilitate relationship with God that we might hear his voice and when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ the great high priest who laid down his life on the cross that was also a means to an end what was it? exactly the same to facilitate relationship with him that we might hear his voice and friends we need to hear his voice in the culture that we're growing up in we need to hear his voice this daily reminder of everything he's done for us and this daily reminder of why obedience to him is not just what he calls us to, but is good for us. Obedience to God leads to our flourishing. It leads to our good. And so as much as these are very legitimate feelings of fear, inadequacy, duty, sometimes in our pride we say, I don't want to obey you. As much as we feel these feelings, we've got to try and hide these feelings by listening to the voice of God. Because the voice of God will speak into our fears. The voice of God will speak into our inadequacies. The voice of God will challenge us when we say we don't want to be obedient. The voice of God will encourage us that when we feel that obedience is a burden, we hear Jesus who says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's the voice of God that helps us to be obedient. And as we're obedient, then our relationship with the living God will flourish. And so to go back to where we started 
On the twelve days of Christmas, my true love gave to me. Think about on the day of Calvary what your true love gave to you. Jesus on the cross. In Jesus we saw perfect obedience and in Jesus we saw the greatest act of self-sacrifice. And our giving is only ever in response to what he has first given us. So what should the Christian life look like? It should look like a life of obedience, joyful obedience in serving the one who's first served us. And what should the Christian life look like? It should look like a life of joyful self-sacrifice as we respond to how God has laid down his life in Jesus for us. So friends, can I encourage you to press on? Press on with obedience because God knows what is best. And press on with a life of self-sacrifice. Thanking God every day for all that he has done in serving you in Jesus. It will not be a wasted life. Even if everyone out there in the world says it is, it will not be a wasted life. So whatever you're going to tomorrow morning, whether you think it's very significant or very insignificant, it will be significant because it's where God has placed you tomorrow. So let's pray now that God would help us to be obedient and to be sacrificial. Loving Father, we're shortly going to share in the Lord's Supper together a wonderful expression of unity around the cross and all that Christ has done for us. But before Neil comes to lead us in that, we pray now that you would, in the moment of this quietness, you would help us to reflect on our own life, on our own situation. Please would you show us areas of our life where we're not being truly obedient to you. Please show us areas of our life where we're not living in a self-sacrificial way. But Lord, don't show us those things to burden us with a sense of guilt because we know we'll fall short. I pray that you would show us these things that we might look to our Saviour, the one who is perfectly obedient and the one who gave up his life for us. Just as Neil, before he comes up to lead us, take a moment of quiet as God's Spirit continues to minister to you.